Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Okay, excitement. Well, tonight we come to the uh, dramatic conclusion of our series, Unlocking the Da Vinci Code. Uh, It's part four, Prophetic Proof. And if you were with us last week, you know that we've been actually just weighing the evidence, both for and against, the Bible as being the inspired Word of God. It's kind of interesting because Dan Brown's novel has raised some serious accusations against the Christian Bible, claims that really actually undermine its credibility and seem to actually have some resonance in our popular culture. Uh, By way of review, uh, on page 231 of Brown's best-selling novel, the character known as Lee Teabing actually boldly asserts, he says, the Bible is a product of man, my dear. Not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. That's actually not what we believe either. So I'm like, that's true, Dan. Man created it, though, as a historical record of tumultuous times. And it's evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. In fact, the modern Bible was compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda. So according to the Da Vinci Code, they claim that the Bible is a product of man, not of God... It's an ever-changing document. In other words, it it shifts over time, just like you play a game of telephone. People add stuff, people take away, and it's actually full of errors. There are glaring historical discrepancies and actually outright lies. And it's a product, mainly, as everything in this postmodern world is, of politics. Edited by men who had an agenda, a thirst for power, and this is what they, you know, only the strong survive. This is what the winners, they write history. Now, those claims stand in stark contrast to the assertion that the Bible made about itself. We looked at 2 Timothy 3.16, which tells us that all scripture is God-breathed. That phrase, God-breathed, means that it came out of the mouth of God. That's the claims of scripture about itself. It was actually breathed by the Spirit of God. You might might also translate the concept of God-breathed as inspired. Now, when Paul talked about inspired, Bible being inspired, what did he mean? Simply put, he meant that all words in scriptures are the very words of God himself. They sprung from his mind from his character, and because God's character is perfect in every aspect, it means that everything he says, all those words of his in the scriptures are perfect as well. So in other words, the Bible is without error. The Bible is inerrant and inspired. Somehow, God supernaturally worked through common men to record his words and then communicate them to us for all eternity. So in summary, the Bible claims about itself to be a product of God, not of man, recording his very words, It's not a changing document, but it's a living document. It's inhabited actually by his spirit. And it is without error or fabrication. And it is mostly a product of divine inspiration written by human men who were carried along by the spirit of God. So in essence, the Bible claims to actually be of dual authorship. And that's the orthodox view articulated in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation... For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. It wasn't about politics or his own ideas. But man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right? So Peter affirms that prophecy or scripture doesn't have the origin in the will of man. It's not biased. But rather, God works through men in the Old Testament called, do you remember this? What are they called in the Old Testament? Begins with a P. Prophets. Good. And in the New Testament, they're called, begins with an A, apostles. Okay? To record his written word. Erwin Lutzer, in his book, Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible, puts it this way. He says, the Bible is a book of God and a book of man. 
God's part was to superintend the writing of the books, revealing his well. Man's part was to write this revelation using a human language and style so that God's message was preserved for future generations. So what to believe? Is the book fact or fiction? Because what you believe about this book will profoundly affect what you believe about the God of whom it speaks. Last week, we actually looked at two objective evidences for the veracity or the truthfulness of the Bible. The first was bibliographic evidence, right? We looked at these historical manuscripts that have survived to determine if these are credible translations that we have, if they actually are historical eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. We actually looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, the records of the Old Testament, and noting with the incredible discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, not the 1950s as Dan Brown just kind of rounds it up, 1947 actually don't undermine the Gospel, They actually don't speak of Jesus at all. They're the Hebrew scriptures. But they actually support that the historical accuracy of the Old Testament documents we have today are genuine, authentic, and credible. Now, if you weren't, by the way, here and want to find out more about that, we've posted all these messages online, okay, along with the rest of the series. So you can go to liquidchurch.com and download it. We also podcast the series, I think, on iTunes. You just can just download it for free if you want. I think think they have it under... um, uh, my name, Pastor Tim Lucas. Let's just we type in iTunes, and all of the messages we ever have here are for free. Download, okay? So if you wanted to catch up, the second thing, it was archaeological evidence. We put on our gloves and started digging through the sand last week, and we found that the more that researchers and scholars pull out of the ground, the more the Bible proves itself to be true. Now, I know it was, a, it was an incredible find about the walls of Jericho. We looked at that article from Time Magazine, Score One for the Bible. Fresh clues support the story of Joshua at the walls of Jericho. And we realize something incredible, that actually scientific facts are not the enemy of spiritual faith. It actually supports it. Modern archaeological finds actually have provided us with an incredible wealth of concrete evidence that testifies to the Bible's veracity. That's that what this book actually records actually happened. And this is important, because to become a Christian, you don't have to check your brain at the door, as many folks assume. Now, whether you're a skeptic or a longtime believer, maybe you're just returning to the faith, there's objective, credible, outside evidence, outside the Bible, that accounts in this book are actually the words of God himself. It's interesting because God never asks anyone to commit intellectual suicide to believe in him, okay? He isn't intimidated by the hard questions or rigorous inspection. You can put his word under a microscope and it doesn't flinch. But still, I realize you may have doubts, and that's totally fine. As I said, there's no use trying to force belief on anybody. Faith is a personal matter, after all. So tonight, I just want to conclude our study by turning to a third type of evidence. And this one is very intriguing, kind of juicy, more so than the previous two. And to me, it actually makes all the difference. And this is the criteria of fulfilled biblical prophecy. Now, when I say prophecy, I realize I need to define what I'm referring to. I mean, when you hear the word prophecy, what do you think of? What images come to your mind? Well, if you, you know, watch late night TV, it might conjure up notions of a guy like this. Everyone know this guy? John Edward. Not the pre- vice presidential candidate. John Edward. TV medium and star of Crossing Over. He's usually on at like 1 a.m., right? He claims to talk to dead relatives, see into the past, and he can forecast your personal future for 1995. <laughs> right? His website actually reads as a psychic medium, author and lecturer. He has, over the last 19 years, helped thousands with his uncanny ability to predict future events and communicate with those who have crossed over to the capital OS other side. And so typically you see John Edwards in front of a TV audience and he says, says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, does the name name Fred mean anything to you? 
And, and typically a crying woman says, my uncle's dog was named Fred. And he says, yeah, yeah, that, that dog is saying he loves you and telling you not to cry because your uncle is okay. And the woman's like, but my uncle's alive. And he's like, see, he's okay, you know. It's kind of like, it's, that's not the prophecy I'm talking about. I'm not talking about psychic friends or fortune-telling hucksters like Miss Cleo. You remember Miss Cleo? This picture you see here on the screen in a CNN report about the Missouri lawsuit filed against her for false advertising and fraud. I don't know if she saw that one coming. I'm not talking... I'm not talking about smoke and mirrors fortune-telling. I'm talking about biblical prophecy, which is the recorded and specific prediction or foreknowledge of something that's going to happen in the future. Prophecy, in the, in the broadest sense, is the prediction of future events. It's interesting. The etymology of the word prophecy is Greek. It comes from pro, which means before, plus the root phineia, which means speak. In other words, speaking before or foretelling, proclamation. And the Bible is, in fact, full of historical prophecies, a staggering amount. Some estimate that actually fully a quarter of the Bible is devoted to prophecy or the prediction of future events. And some of that prophecy has already been fulfilled, or that is, it's come to pass in history and proven that it's true. Point. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the most powerful ways to prove that the Bible was not merely written by men, but is the very word of God. I mean, everyone understands the logic. To predict events in the future requires supernatural revelation. It requires an all-knowing or omniscient being, not just a human writer with human limitations, but an omniscient God with a sovereign plan. So, fulfilled prophecy. Now, here's the deal about this. It breaks down into two primary categories, and that is general predictions, of which there are approximately 107, and messianic prophecies, of which there are 456, that point to Jesus Christ being the promised Messiah or Savior. Now, more on that in a minute. It's interesting because the Bible itself actually challenges its readers to test it using prophecy. This is kind of interesting because people are like, oh, the Bible doesn't stand up to close inspection. The Bible's like, bring it on. It's claims, actually, that God alone knows the future. In the book written by the Old Testament prophet, for instance, Isaiah, we read this. Isaiah writes, present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so we may know that you are God's. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we will be dismayed and filled with fear. Yeah, (laughs) bring it. A few chapters over in Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10, God says, remember this, fix it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. So the Bible actually says that the authenticating mark of its truthfulness as the inspired and infallible word of God is its remarkable ability to predict accurately future events. These are actually the Lord's words and the Christian God. He's like, it's like he almost, almost taunts other gods. He's like, bring in your idols. Tell us what's going to happen. Tell us the former things, right? No, no, no. I, I alone am God. There's no other. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Now, it's one thing to claim to predict the future. It's another to claim to do it with 100% accuracy. That's something that you'll see, uh, you know, the late night cranks never do. They're like, you know, someone here named Fred, and like, my dog's named Frank. Oh, close enough, right? No. 
The Bible sets an incredibly high standard of accuracy that proves this is the authentic word of God. Did you know this? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18.20, the Bible's own standard is that if a person is known to have given a false prediction, a false prophecy, what do you think happens to him? She put to death, stone him. Thank you, someone from, you know, the early, early B.C. there. Uh, but a prophet <laughs> who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. Yeah, pretty high bar there, actually, the Bible weighs prophecy by. There's a great little book by the name of A Skeptic's Search for God, which I highly recommend to you. It's actually written by a man named uh, Ralph Muncaster, and he was actually an engineer and a former atheist. And he set out to disprove the Bible and reveal once and for all that this is just a book of myths. These are superstitions. In his book, A Skeptic's Search for God, Muncaster, he developed, remember, this guy's an engineer, so he developed a statistical test that he applied to the Bible in regard to prophecy. Because he was like, a perfect God should be able to make a perfect book. (laughs) So it made sense to him that if he could discredit any of the claims of prophecy in the Bible, he could destroy its credibility. This is what he wrote. He said this. He said, I was somewhat surprised by the Bible's arrogant-seeming boast about its God being the God and that there were no others. I was surprised by the law that prophecy be 100% perfect. In probability testing, only an accepted degree of statistical significance is necessary to reach a conclusion, not perfection. But I reminded myself that a perfect God of the universe would be able to perfectly predict the future in any writing or person he inspired, just as the Bible had declared. I decided to examine each testament individually to see if either could clearly point to a God through 100% accurate historical prophecy. All right. Again, as a, as a secular engineer, he noted that in the modern world, again, just secular world, probability testing doesn't demand perfection. You don't need 100% to get something as a general truth. You just need an outcome to come to a significant portion of the time in order for it to be accepted as general truth. Not so with the Bible. It claimed to be 100% accurate in its predictions, and so Muncaster took it up on his challenge. He, per, he actually applied his 100% accuracy statistic to over 118 different biblical prophecies, just in the Old Testament alone. And what he found shocked him. Using the empirical evidence of historical and archaeological documentation, he found that out of 118, 118 were true. Moncaster writes this. He says, The statistical prophecy testing I was going through was hitting me like a ton of bricks. My rational mind told me it was impossible. After all, hadn't man written the Bible? Yet something was quite amazing, almost frightening. How could books written centuries in advance predict the future in with 100% accuracy? He's an engineer, so you know what he did? He said he determined that for 118 prophecies to occur just randomly would be 10 with 118 zeros. Now, to put that into perspective, for those of you who aren't math people like me, just to give you a frame of reference, the same probability would be you winning 17 state lotteries in a row by buying just one ticket for each lottery. 17 tickets, 17 jackpots. Now, that's lucky, okay? Or it would be the equivalent of being struck by lightning 24 times in one year which I guess is unlucky. (laughs) Either way, you get the point. The statistical probability that hundreds of prophecies predicting the outcomes of wars, the rise and fall of kings and nations with 100% accuracy is just about zip. 
So if you want to gain unbelievable confidence that the Bible we have and the God of whom it speaks is divine truth, you look at fulfilled prophecy. And that's exactly what I'd like to do with the rest of our time together. Now, obviously, we don't have time to go through all the prophecies it contains, but I want you to get a feel for its divine nature by looking at a particular type of prophecy that's central to the Christian faith. And that is messianic prophecies. Now, does everyone know what the term Messiah means? In Hebrew, it's Meshach, okay? The term Messiah was not a proper noun actually used in the Old Testament, but this concept of an anointed one or one to come was clearly prophesied by all of Israel's prophets, okay? Eventually, that name Messiah actually became the accepted term for this coming king who everyone expected to sit on the throne of David, okay? So throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures that preceded the writing of the New Testament, right, by about 1,500 years, there was this clearly defined expectation there's going to be this coming king, a savior, who would deliver Israel once and for all from her enemies. And of course, it was widely assumed that this Messiah would be a military or political leader. There's actually a classic volume written in 1863. It's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's authored by a man by the name of Dr. Alfred Edersheim. He's a renowned Messianic scholar. In an Appendix 9 of his book, Dr. Edersheim notes that there are 456 total Messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. That's the Old Testament. 75 are from the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There are 243 in the prophets, right? Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, etc. And 138 from the balance of the Old Testament. Now what's interesting is that the primary thing that separates us from our Jewish friends and our beliefs is that we believe Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And I believe that the fulfillment of these prophecies give us beyond a doubt evidence to the fact that the New Testament contains the very word of God. And that the word of God is Jesus. I mean, if these messianic prophecies are indeed true, then the Bible is not the only thing that's authentically true. That is, the person to whom scripture points, Jesus the Christ, is the embodiment of truth himself. The very son of God, God in the flesh. If the Bible's true, we've not only been given God's word, we've been given his son. And that changes everything. So let's take a look at just some of these messianic prophecies so you can weigh the evidence yourself. And I'll start with an example to show how this works. Let me invite you. Actually, pass out the Bibles if you would. You can pass them down. We'll turn on the lights a little bit so you can kind of follow along and and thumb through them. Jay, if you could get the lights there, just a tiny bit there. Um, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Micah. This is a little-known one. I'll give you some page numbers on page 1502. And Micah was written between 742 and 687 B.C. What does B.C. stand for? Before Christ, okay? The prophet Micah, he was a prophet in Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel. Possibly written during the reign of King Hezekiah. Again, this is 742 or 687 B.C., before Christ. And in Micah 5, verse 2, the prophet writes this. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, that's the southern part of Israel, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Now, Fafra was a, was a district in which the historic city of Bethlehem was located. We all know that Bethlehem isn't just in Pennsylvania, right? This goes back ancient times. And Micah clearly identifies, he says, this little town is one of co- great significance is going to come upon her. 
Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So the prophet Micah makes the prediction in 687 B.C. that the coming ruler of Israel, the Messiah, will come from Bethlehem of all places. Okay. Now keep your finger in Micah. Finger in Micah. Wow, that was New Jersey. Keep your finger in Micah. Now go on over here, right? Go on over to Matthew, actually. Now we're going to the New Testament. That's Old Testament. Now we're going to the New Testament. Matthew, okay? First gospel there. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Now Matthew was written centuries later. As we learned last week, it was about 60 to 65 A.D., right? After the death of Christ. Now, in his gospel, Matthew records this. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, in Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. So if you miss the point, Matthew highlights it for you here. Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, hundreds of years after Micah's prediction, is the fulfillment of this critical Old Testament prophecy. Okay, Again, the math on this thing is incredible. Micah, 687 B.C., before Christ, predicts the birthplace of Jesus hundreds of years before he's actually born. And then the New Testament records authenticate the fulfillment of this prophecy. That's how the Old Testament and New Testament relate. You got this? They go back and forth, back and forth. One predicts, the other fulfills. One predicts, the other fulfills. If you go back, actually, to Micah 5, this chapter provides one of the clearest Old Testament prophecies of Christ's coming as Messiah. The key descriptive phrase actually found in verses 4 and 5. It says, he will stand and shepherd his flock. What did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the, na- of the Lord his God. And they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And he will be their, what? Peace. In one of Christ's final talks he says, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Because of Christ's first coming, we actually have the opportunity to experience peace with God with no more fear of judgment, no more conflict, no more guilt. This is an incredible prophecy centuries before Christ, and Jesus steps into it and fulfills it. Both the specific location of his birth as well as the qualitative nature of his ministry, one of peace. And that's the beauty of prophecy, okay? For the gospel writers and their Jewish listeners, one of the main reasons that they put their trust in Jesus was the way that his life uniquely fulfilled in exacting detail the Old Testament prophecies about him. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.17, he said, Do not think that I've actually come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them. In other words, he says, the law and the prophets, that's a way of talking about the Old Testament. That's about me. From the geographic prediction of my birthplace, the predictions go on and on and on. The prophet Isaiah actually predicts the Savior would be born of a virgin in Isaiah 7. It's confirmed by eyewitness testimonies in both Matthew and Luke, back and forth, back and forth. Now, what I think is really special and probably the most striking of all is that many of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, of all the 456 of these prophecies, there were 29 
that were fulfilled in the New Testament in a 24-hour period of time. All of these prophecies point to the anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, who'd be betrayed, tried, crucified, and buried. And catch this. All 29 of these prophecies were written by different prophets over five centuries, okay? Different authors, 1,500 years between them, predictive foreknowledge of specific events. And this is where it gets crazy, folks. Because when you talk about the Bible being true, (laughs) that doesn't just mean that it includes some generally, you know, valid guidelines for living. (laughs) Neither does it mean that it's actually simply historically accurate, though it is. Rather, when you consider these ancient prophecies foretold hundreds of years prior to Christ, fulfilling them in full, you understand the Bible is making an incredible claim. The Bible itself is saying, it's not just that I'm simply true, but Jesus Christ, of whom these entire scriptures testify, is truly the Son of God. And that to put your confidence in him as one Savior means that you are personally the recipient of salvation. In other words, you believe God. You put your trust in his word. More importantly, you put your trust in his son and what he went through for you on the cross while here on earth. If the Bible said believed, it means that God actually walked this earth for 33 years as a flesh and blood man. But it was in the last 24 hours of his life that we see perhaps his, the greatest display of his love for us through the prophecies foretold about him. Let's take a quick look at a few of those 29 messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life on earth. And the first one actually comes from Psalm 41.9 which prophesied that he'd be betrayed by a friend. This is a psalm of David, and he wrote, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, here's the deal. This was a psalm written by King David, again, hundreds of years before. But echoes of Christ's betrayal. Judas, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, had spent three years learning from Jesus, traveling and eating with him and handling the finances of the group. On the night of his betrayal, the prophetic words of David come true. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me in John 13. It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread. Then dipping this piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, even my close friend, whom I trusted. He who shared his bread has lifted up his heel against me. As you know, Judas sold Jesus for a paltry amount. How much? 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah, this is kind of interesting, Zechariah 11, it says, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. Now, this Old Testament reference, okay, it didn't say Jesus is going to be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. The Old Testament reference here is to the price paid to an owner for a slave who gets gored by an ox. (laughs) And it's actually saying 30 pieces of silver is an insult to pay for a slave. But in the New Testament, Jesus the Messiah is sold for the price of a slave. What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you, Judas says to the Sanhedrin. So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. It's amazing because, as you know, Judas experienced tremendous regret after this, right? He said, what am I doing? And he actually returned the money. Remember this? Betrayal money that he actually returns and he says, I'm not taking this money. He throws it back into God's house, just like Zechariah said. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Echoed in Matthew 27. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and hanged himself. It's an amazing thing because... What did they use the 30 pieces of silver for after Judas threw it back at them? Does anyone remember? This would be an advanced question. To buy a potter's field to bury him in. Because they said, we can't take blood money. We know what we use this money for. 
will buy a field, a potter's field of all things, and, and bury Judas there. When those events were set in motion in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, it was amazing. You all know that he was forsaken by his disciples, and that should have come as no surprise. In Zechariah 13, it was written around, this is around 480 B.C., just before his arrest, Jesus actually quoted from this verse, referring to himself and his disciples. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who's close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. That's what Jesus quotes. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. In other words, he knew beforehand that his disciples would scatter when he was arrested. The Roman sword was the military power that put Christ to death. And everyone deserted him and fled, Mark underscores in chapter 14 of his gospel. With his disciples on the run, he was accused by a whole bevy of false witnesses. Ruthless witnesses come forward, David writes in Psalm 35. They questioned me on things I know nothing about. Now, David wrote this likely when he was being hunted by King Saul. It's kind of interesting. Hundreds of years later, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders would rally a handful of false witnesses to testify against Jesus at his sham trial. And this is one of hundreds of direct links between King David and the Messiah who was prophesied to sit on the throne of David. One of the most upsetting things to me, if when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' execution and his sham trial and everything, is that Jesus never spoke back. That's upsetting to me as a guy who likes to talk a lot. But actually, when these false witnesses accused him, he was silent before his accusers. And that turns us to Isaiah 53. I want to invite you to turn to Isaiah 53, because this is a key book in the ancient prophets. And it really is one of the most powerful messianic texts that we have in the Old Testament. It tells us that the Messiah would actually not be a political conqueror, even though that's what everyone was looking for. But would be a suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of all people. Now, here's a question. Who would believe that God would choose to save the world through a humble, suffering servant rather than a glorious, powerful king? Such a prophecy, this is likely issued around 681 B.C., before Christ. It's astounding. Israel's pro- Isaiah's prophecy is contrary, by the way, to, to just human pride and worldly ways. In other words, Isaiah looked into the future and he foretold, he says, you've got to understand something. The Messiah's strength will be shown by his suffering. By his humility. By his mercy. He will be oppressed and afflicted, yet he will not open his mouth. He will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And Matthew certainly had that in the back of his head when he said, when Jesus was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave them no answer. Not an interpretation, an eyewitness account. It's an amazing thing. But when Jesus didn't answer his accusers, it wasn't because he lacked answers. But it was a demonstration of God's power through voluntary weakness. And it continued is what what makes it most hard to watch those last 24 hours. Jesus was wounded and bruised according to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Matthew describes in chapter 27, he says, then they actually released Barabbas, a murderer, to the crowd, but he had Jesus flogged, and that is whipped and, and just, just torn apart and handed him over to actually be crucified. Now, this to me is remarkable because Isaiah gets into specific detail here. He doesn't say, Jesus was beat up for our transgressions. He was what? Pierced. At this point in history, folks, crucifixion hadn't even yet been invented. 
Crucifixion was an execution device invented centuries later by the Romans. They would flog a victim and then nail his hands and his feet to wooden crossbeams. Yet Isaiah predicts that the Savior of the world will be pierced for our transgressions, literally punctured for our sins and our failings. How can an Old Testament person understand the idea of Christ dying for our sins, for our faults and our failings, actually bearing the punishment we deserve? There are hints of that in the Old Testament. The sacrifice of animals, which is a common practice at the time, suggested that idea. But it's one thing to kill a lamb and something quite different to kill God's son. What you see in Isaiah is God pulling aside the curtain of time to let people of Isaiah's day look ahead to the suffering of the future Messiah and the resulting forgiveness that would be available to all mankind through Jesus' death on the cross. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Everything Jesus endured, he was, he was smitten and spit upon. Even the little things like that out of the crowd. Jesus was treated with great contempt and scorn. Isaiah said, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. Matthew records in Matthew 26. And they spit in his face. And they struck him with their fists. And others slapped him. He was mocked. According to Psalm 22. Again, this is a psalm, a key messianic psalm. And in it, David forecasts, he says, the contempt with which Jesus will be treated during his final 24 hours. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Matthew 27 says, they put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. You remember the crowd at the foot of his cross actually go to Jesus and they said, if you really are God, why don't you what? Come down from the cross. Save yourself. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. It's an incredible thing when predictions are made about the individual actions of free agents who have, who have nothing to do with hundreds of years before of forecasting. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. Again, another reference to crucifixion. Psalm 22, David continues, he says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. And Luke says, when they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha, there they crucified Jesus. It wasn't only Isaiah who predicted Jesus would be crucified. David, again, gave this forecast before crucifixion had ever even been invented. Later, after Jesus rose from the dead, he would actually offer the nail marks in his hand as key evidence that he'd been resurrected from the dead. You remember when Thomas and John, Thomas in the Gospel of John, he says, I don't know if I believe. He says, unless I see what? The nail marks in his hand. And put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Jesus was not alone on that day, even though everybody cut bait and run. He actually had two guys who stuck around with him. Anyone remember? A couple of thieves... He was numbered with the transgressors, we're told in Isaiah 53, after he poured out his life unto death. In Matthew 27, we're told two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on his right and one on his left. In other words, Jesus was not only crucified between two lowly common criminals. He identified with their guilt and took on our sin on the cross. He was numbered with the transgressors. And you think of this moment like, this is a horror story. This is terrible. How would I react to this? I don't know. You're not God. But how did God react? In the moment when he was spit upon, rejected, punctured, pierced, beaten, bruised, killed, 
Who was he thinking about? Us. In fact, the men and women who were spitting and beating and burning and hurting. He actually made intercession. One of his last dying wishes is to pray for those people. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Isaiah 53 said, He will bear the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. I want you to imagine the shock of those at the foot of the cross who hear Jesus' final words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Our God is a God of limitless forgiveness, offering pardon and grace even to those who spit in his face and would reject him. Whatever you're, you know, we all have these sins that at times keep us away from God. We say, well, if God ever found out this, he'd never accept me. I just can't face him. People pulled out parts of his beard, spit at him, punctured him, did away with him, and yet he prayed the entire time, forgive them, Father. That's the heart of God. Even when he was rejected by his own people, which was prophesied in Isaiah 53 as well, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. John 1 tells us early on, Jesus came to those who were his own, but his own received him not. He was hated without a cause. That's in Psalm 69. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without course. Those who seek to destroy me, I'm forced to, res- to restore what I did not steal. And Jesus, Jesus had a knowledge of this. He understood what he was stepping into. He said, this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. And as he stood there all alone, it must have been one of the most abandoning, isolating effects. Because his friends actually stood far off from them. We're told some went to actually see him. But it says in Luke, it says, All those who knew him, including the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Keeping their distance lest they be persecuted too. David in Psalm 38 says, My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. It's probably the darkest day in human history. People shook their heads. They just... What is this? I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they shake their heads. That's what David wrote in Psalm 109. And Matthew records eyewitness. Those who passed by Jesus hurled insults at him, just shaking their heads. (laughs) The reaction of those who witnessed this atrocity. Man on a cross. They actually didn't just walk by. Some stayed and stared. In fulfillment, actually, of Psalm 22. I can count all my bones and people stare and gloat over me. Luke says, the people stood watching and the rulers even just sneered at him. God on a cross. It was a display that had never been seen before and will never be seen again. A crowd watched, they hooted, and they hollered. They actually parted his garments and cast lots for them. And that was foretold in Psalm 22. It says, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That wasn't new. In John 19, it records, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it off. Let's decide by lot who will get it. They decided they'd gamble. It's hard for us to understand, folks. But in Roman times, people dreaded the shame of crucifixion even more than the physical pain itself. It was excruciating. We've got to understand, hanging on a cross 
was reserved for bottom feeders. The lowest of the lows in society, like slaves, hardened criminals, traitors. Roman citizens, for instance, who were given the death penalty were usually beheaded. Their executions were over and done with quickly. They were never crucified because it was considered too horrible, too degrading. In fact, just the very word cross, it was a vulgar word. It was a four-letter word that the Romans would never utter in polite company. Now, if you think of most paintings, think of most paintings of Jesus on the cross, most artistic renderings of the crucifixion. The figure of Jesus is usually covered, he's usually like this, with his legs kind of on top of one another, with a loincloth. And that reflects artistic modesty, but isn't based in historical accuracy. See, in the ancient world, the victim was always, without fail, crucified naked. And his legs were not always crossed. In fact, sometimes they were actually splayed out to the side, each foot nailed to the side of the main beam, most likely, for maximum exposure, humiliation, and vulnerability. The intent was to utterly degrade the prisoner, make him subhuman, and say, that could happen to you. And the Romans saw crucifixion as a deterrent. They, they wanted the gruesome scene to be witnessed by as many people as possible. And Jesus' death was no exception. Most likely it took place at a prominent, conspicuous spot just outside the city gate or a hill off the main highway. And Psalm 22 prophesies that Jesus' garments would be taken, ripped off of him, divided, and gambled on. So get that. Get this. No, this is hard. I know. I know. It's not appetizing. But flogged, stripped, pierced, nailed to the cross, the condemned man was a gruesome spectacle for everyone to see. People with an appetite for such things or just a curious would have found it difficult actually not to stop and just kind of like, whoa, 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 oh my God, like a car wreck. Oftentimes it turned into grisly public entertainment as people were free to ridicule the dead men or throw stones or spit. There's a reason that years later, the Apostle Paul would call the cross the tree of shame. That's the term actually the Romans coined. And because Jesus experienced such unfathomable shame and humiliation, such amazing disgrace, the absence of grace, it was extremely difficult for early hearers of the gospel to believe this is the Son of God? What? For the average Greek or Roman person, the Christian belief that someone who had been crucified is Savior and Lord of the universe, it's flat-out craziness. According to Paul, the idea of Jesus on the cross was offensive to everyone. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, he writes, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. In Greek, the word translated foolishness is moriah, from which we derive our English word moron. How could some fool hang on a tree of shame be worthy of worship? Yet Paul continues while it scandalizes some. Its brilliance is obvious to others. Paul continues this, he says, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God allowing himself to be humiliated and surrendering his power, absorbing all the evil of the universe into his own flesh, to spare his children. There is no other religion that makes this claim. The final few details of Jesus' life pretty much seal the deal and kind of crack the code for Jewish people who realized that the Messiah they'd been eagerly awaiting had come. There are all sorts of little things. Jesus suffering thirst on the cross. 
When he was thirsty, they actually kind of scorned him. They offered gall and vinegar instead. When you see these things, prophesied in the Psalms, Psalm 69, they put gall in my food, gave me vinegar for my thirst, hundreds and hundreds of centuries or years prior. And they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When you see this stuff, you say, what are the chances of this? What are the chances of this being made up? Josh McDowell, in his book, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he says, the likelihood of this, if you just took eight of these prophecies, eight of them, we've looked at like 20-something, the odds of a person coincidentally fulfilling all eight of them would be one in ten to the 17th power. Now, since we can't easily picture what that means, he gave this illustration. He said, suppose you took the state of Texas and you spread silver dollars two feet deep across the whole state, and you marked just one of them, and you buried it in the state of Texas. And then you choose one person. Chris, we're going to blindfold you. Would you pick that one silver dollar out of those millions of silver dollars two feet across the state of Texas? His chances of getting the marked one in this final try would be one in ten to the 17th power. That's how powerful the proof is that Jesus was truly the Son of God, the Savior predicted by the Old Testament. And Jesus had no doubt, had an understanding of this during his final moments on earth, his final cry, actually. When he cried out at the ninth hour in a loud voice, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's in Aramaic. And it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's verbatim. David's cry in Psalm 22. So Jesus knew hundreds of years later while hanging on the cross carrying our burdens of sin, this wasn't just bad luck or coincidence, but he would be fulfilling his father's plans, be rejected and abandoned by God as a substitute for us. And it means that we can be restored to friendship with him. Even when he felt abandoned, Jesus committed himself to God. It's amazing, but... um, He called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Which again is verbatim from the Psalm 31. Showing his absolute dependence on God the Father. After he died, it's kind of interesting, they didn't break his bones, which is a strange detail whenever I read that in John 19. They came to Jesus, found that he was already dead, and they didn't break his legs. You need to know something. It was actually Roman custom to break the legs of a victim to speed death. See, when a person hung on the cross, death came actually by suffocation. And the victim could actually push against the cross with his legs to hold his body up and keep breathing. And with, but with broken legs, he'd, suffer, he'd suffocate almost immediately. Yet these Roman soldiers who were experienced knew without question that Jesus was dead when they checked him. So they decided not to break his legs as they'd done to the other victims. What did they do instead? Remember, they pierced his side. Jesus was literally died of a broken heart. In Psalm 22, he writes, go ahead. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted away within me. It says, when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bring a sudden flow of blood and water, which medically, by the way, just simply indicates that the sacs surrounding his heart had actually burst. He died of a broken heart. His side pierced. The prophecy that Jesus would be pierced in Zechariah 12 
around 480 BC, that then darkness would cover the land, as Amos predicted. Covering the land in darkness, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Predicted. And finally, his body taken down and buried in a rich man's tomb. It's an amazing thing, folks, but these are just sampling, folks. Just a sampling. You got this a few of the 29 specific and detailed prophecies that were written hundreds of years before this man known as Jesus Christ walked the earth. Ones which he would fulfill explicitly in exact detail during the last 24 hours of his life. How could this be? Only if the Bible is indeed a supernatural book written and planned by God himself. It's one of the most powerful proofs that the Bible is the word of God. And since all prophecies have been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, the finest detail, you can be sure that the Bible itself is God's revelation to us. No human writer could be 100% accurate. As Peter writes in 2 Peter, prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament even looks forward to the events that would happen three days later, the resurrection of Christ. Psalm 16 actually says that God's Holy One would not be abandoned to the grave. You won't let your Holy One see decay. And three days later, all four Gospels record how Jesus was raised from the dead. Even appeared to his disciples and over 40 witnesses throughout the region. So what do you believe as you consider this incredible body of evidence set before you? 456 times the Old Testament speaks of a divine Savior to come. And the New Testament points to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Humanly speaking, there is no way that 40 different authors over 1,500 plus years of writing can cut up with, come up with this stuff on their own. The Bible is a supernatural book, and as crazy as that might sound to some, the evidence supports the claim. What do you make of it? More importantly, how about this? What will you do with it? To point that question to you on a personal level, there's one more prophecy I'd actually like to close with. It's not one fulfilled yet. It actually comes from the New Testament. In Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, the Apostle Paul tells us that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about that prophecy. One day, every knee will bow Every tongue confess that what the Bible has been telling us for ages is true. That Jesus Christ is Lord over all. That he's the true king of heaven and has loved each of you unto death. So the question is this. Can, have, you, have you made that confession yet? Have you fulfilled that prophecy? <laughs> have you weighed the evidence and believed the truth? Have you been truthful about yourself? How about that? We'll start there. <laughs> You know, the trailer for the Da Vinci Code movie actually ends by saying, seek the truth, to which I'd say, yes, seek the real truth. (laughs) And the unvarnished truth is, honestly, that some people are looking for a spiritual out. (laughs) The Bible actually warns us in 2 Timothy that there'll come a time when people actually will no longer listen to to sound teaching. They'll actually follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever they want to hear and actually follow strange myths. (laughs) You see, it's easier to ignore a troubled conscience or a nagging sense of spiritual confusion if you can convince yourself that the whole Christian story is just phony. So some people look for reasons not to believe. Maybe you're one of them. 
Or they accept far-fetched conspiracy theories if they will ease their mind and help them feel like they're off the hook with God whose Spirit's convicting them of their sin and drawing them towards himself. Maybe you've been there and done that. You used to look for spiritual outs. Maybe when you walk into church or you listen to a podcast, you want to find a scandal, you want to sniff out hypocrisy. And it's easy to do because we blow it for Jesus all the time. Many folks want to believe Christianity is a fraud because it puts the spotlight on those issues and takes the heat off of them. And I think it's one of the reasons Dan Brown's novel has had such resonance in our culture. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've been spending your time looking for things you don't like about you know, Christians or the church or pastors like me. I understand. Maybe you're like the story about W.C. Fields. He was supposedly on his deathbed thumbing through the Bible. And someone asked him what he was doing, and he said, Looking for loopholes, my boy, looking for loopholes. Could it be that you've been looking for loopholes instead of searching your own heart and asking, could it be true that I need forgiveness from Jesus for all my wrongdoing that's alienated me from God? Could it be that God has sent Jesus, his son, to die for me, to give me new life? That he is the king of the universe that God's supernatural world tells me about. The Bible tells us to test everything, but please don't let that turn into a cynical spirit that blinds you to the very real truth about God and the very real truth about yourself. Maybe it's time to do what I did one day and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to keep searching for an out in order to keep me from a God who loves me and has moved heaven and earth to get to me and is offering me the free gift of forgiveness who wants me to know him personally now and for eternity. Jesus said his mission in this world was to reach out to people like you with compassion and love and grace and forgiveness. And for some of you, the time has come not to meet the Jesus of Hollywood or a novelist fertile imagination, but the very real Jesus of history who brought, he bought you with his life and offers you a new life and a new eternity right now. How do you do that? It's not hard. It's not rocket science. It's actually very simple to start a relationship with Jesus as your, as your Messiah, as your Lord. In Romans 10.9, Paul tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Put your confidence in him and his life, what he did for you. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's all it takes. A personal confession from you to God declaring that you believe Jesus is who he said he was. God's son, savior of the world. And you put your full trust in his death and resurrection to save you from your sins and give you new life. If you haven't done that, tonight would be an incredible time to embrace the real truth. Let's bow our heads so you can talk to God directly. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you that it makes all the difference today, what happened 2,000 years ago. I pray for each man and woman here that your Holy Spirit would be heavy on them, not let them go. You love them too much, Lord. We know that. We've seen it. We've seen it with our eyes. Now plant it in our hearts through the power and in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.